You're listening to the podcast for Nerdy Christians, a show for progressive followers of Jesus who also happen to love Hogwarts, Hobbits, and selling popsicles to lemmings. This is season one, episode six, Tricksters. I'm Carrie Combs, and I'm very happy to be sitting across the internet from Adam Thomas. Hey, Adam. Hi, Carrie. So you're happy to be sitting across the internet from me. Are you only saying that because I wrote it into the script? I mean, it's also a true sentiment. I would say it's a both and. Excellent. All right. I'm really excited today because as of recording this, the Star Wars Episode Nine trailer dropped two days ago, and it looks really cool. And they did a great job making a trailer where I have absolutely no idea what's going to happen in this 155-minute movie. You feel all the emotions from it? Uh, well, I started crying at the very end of it because Princess Leia has the last words of the trailer, and I just, whoa. Yeah. For when episode three came out, I got permission to see it at midnight because my my when I was in high school, you know, and it was staying out late only because my mom said it would be the last Star Wars movie that was ever released. So it was a historical moment. So she'd mm. let her 17-year-old daughter stay out all night. And the woman who sat next to me just wept the whole time. <laughs> so I wonder where she is now and if she's weeping through, like you, yeah, the, the, the trailer, trailer for episode nine. <laughs> Well, uh, yeah, I, I went to the midnight show of the, um, the Phantom Menace when it first aired, and I was about that age, and it was very disappointing. Oh, I'm sorry. And I don't think I've ever seen a movie at midnight since. Oh, no. I, uh, I did get my tickets, though, for episode 9, 10 a.m. show on the day it, it comes out, so pretty excited about that. Put that on my to-do list. Oh, what are we talking about today? We are talking about tricksters, one of our archetypes. I'm very excited to talk about this one because it's some of my favorite characters in fiction. We, I feel like we draw from a really wide range. Yeah, this one, we, we're pulling in a couple of char- of, uh, of pieces of uh, media that we haven't talked about yet uh, and ones that are close to our hearts. Speaking of things that are close to my heart, you want to do the Bible reading? This is a reading from Genesis. Isaac said to Jacob, come here and let me touch you, my son. Are you my son Esau or not? So Jacob approached his father Isaac, and Isaac touched him and said, The voice is Jacob's voice, but the arms are Esau's arms. Isaac didn't recognize him because his arms were hairy like Esau's arms, so he blessed him. Isaac said, Are you really my son Esau? And he said, I am. Isaac said, Bring some food here and let me eat some of my son's game so I can bless you. Jacob put it before him and he ate. And he brought him wine and he drank. His father Isaac said to him, Come here and kiss me, my son. So he came close and kissed him. When Isaac smelled the scent of his clothes, he blessed him. And our quote from Nerd Canon comes from Richard Adams' Watership Down. El Orhera, your people cannot rule the world, for I will not have it so. All the world will be your enemy, prince with a thousand enemies. And whenever they catch you, they will kill you. But first they must catch you, digger, listener, runner, prince with the swift warning. Be cunning and full of tricks, and your people shall never be destroyed. So we just uh, heard a 
quote from the book of Genesis in which Jacob, uh, the trickster of the Old Testament, has stolen his brother's blessing, Esau being the oldest son, that was his to have. Earlier, he had stolen Esau's birthright. And so Jacob is just taking everything from his older brother, lying his way into it. He's got his mother as his accomplice. She's the one that cooks the food that Jacob's going to bring to his dad, Isaac. Um, And so Jacob is the prototypical trickster in the Old Testament. His name that he is given later on in the book of Genesis is Israel, which means the one who struggles with God. And that happens after he has the fight with the angel, like the wrestling seen over a a whole night long with the angel and he won't let the angel go until the angel blesses him and that's when he gets that new name israel jacob also has a little bit of a comeuppance after the scene that we read in which he is heading to find a wife and his soon-to-be father-in-law laban makes him work for seven years for his daughter rachel's hand and then on the night of the wedding he marries leah instead and so he has to work for a whole nother seven years to get Rachel. The trickster gets the, tricked. The trickster gets tricked right away there. <laughs> Laban's a trickster too. What do we make of him that he's this, you know, this such an important figure? And he, I feel like he gains so much respect in, in the struggling with the angel, in the wrestling. Is it something about how he uses his cleverness to get what he needs, to get what he wants? What do we make of him? Yeah, it's a good question because one would expect characters in the Bible that we are supposed to emulate to have sort of more virtuousness. And mm-hmm. Jacob seems to get what he wants by by deceit and cunning. Uh, and yet, at the same time, if you take a step back and you look at a wider swath of characters in the Old Testament, we see a lot of younger sons getting preferential treatment over the older. So like a, a preference for the downtrodden, for the underdog. Right, for, for the, the underdog. Second, that's, for the that's second the word. son. Yeah, the, the underdog is definitely the right word there. And Israel felt like that underdog for a long time, mm. especially once it was inhabiting the promised land. And it wasn't until Israel was trying to set itself up to be just like the other nations in uh, that area where they start to get their own chariots and their horses and start counting all their soldiers. And... Uh, relying on their strength of arms instead of their relationship with God uh, to win them victories. Uh, Once they move into that space, they stop being that underdog. And that's when it gets taken away in in this larger narrative. Yeah. And Jacob is that first kind of underdog character. Uh, His son, Joseph as well uh, becomes that underdog character when he gets thrown into the cistern and and then sold into slavery in Egypt. Oh, and ultimately tricking his family into forgiving into into reconciliation of some kind by hide by disguising his identity yeah he disguises his identity and then he wants to know whether or not his brothers have changed and so he make he sets it up so that his brother his full-blooded brother benjamin is going to get captured and they say no 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 take us take us because our dad jacob is going to die if benjamin doesn't come home right so he ultimately is able to use his tricks to reveal their true natures and it shows that they have grown and changed That underdog status, though, that Jacob seems to have, Mm -hmm. and then that then the whole nation of Israel that's named for him has, uh, we can see how the tricksters in both folklore and then in all of the nerd canon that we're going to discuss in a minute, uh, we see them have a similar narrative. 
Well, and this archetype shows up in a lot of culture, like so many of these archetypes, it shows up in a lot of cultures, mythology and folklore. We see Loki, we see Puck, there's a Nancy, there's all the stories about Jack, like Jack and the Beanstalk. Mm -hmm, Um, mm -hmm. In North America, we've got the stories of Coyote. Mm -hmm. There's so many, um, so many of these beloved figures who poke fun, who push the, push the envelope a little bit, who open boundaries. Yeah. And those characters, they tend to be good characters in this. And maybe we can talk here a little bit about Dungeons and Dragons alignment, Uh, (laughs) the alignment system in Dungeons and Dragons. Uh, There's basically two axes that alignment works on. One is good and evil. And the other one is order and chaos. Uh, So what is your character Emric in our in our D and D game. He's supposed to be lawful good, but we've had a spate of more chaos recently. So I think he's moving more towards chaotic good, chaotic, slash good, chaotic yeah. neutral. Perhaps I'm not mm. sure. They've got, done some morally ambiguous things, but I think <laughs> as a um, as kind of a rule follow, he is a rule follower. He is mm-hmm. pretty stuck on on tradition and history and the law and order of his people. Yeah, dwarves tend to be lawful good as a general rule, yeah. And I think he follows my my personality in that respect. <laughs> the idea, though, of order versus chaos is really fascinating when we look at it from uh, the concept of alignment in Dungeons & Dragons. Uh, because, again, we have those two axes, order and chaos and good and evil. And there are lawful evil characters in Dungeons & Dragons. As far as player characters go, um, most player characters, as long as they're not running like an evil campaign, run somewhere along the lawful good, lawful neutral, chaotic good, chaotic neutral. And the difference between chaos and order is really fascinating because you can be chaotic good and still desire for institutions to, uh, to change or to go away. Because the whole idea about the the challenge between order and chaos is that if the order is not serving the people, then it needs to change. And that's so you can be chaotic good and still want to see, uh, you know, the destruction of a government, say. So it doesn't just mean going off doing exactly whatever you think. It's, it's instituting change. Yeah, well, chaotic neutral would be just sort of a character who's going to do whatever they want whereas chaotic good yeah and chaotic good though is a character who wants to who is still doing good but will bend the rules break the rules if necessary in order to get make that good happen Mm. um i one of my homebrew archetypes is for the paladin class and paladins are almost universally lawful good again unless they're evil paladins or oathbreaker paladins but they're supposed to be lawful good and i made uh, a paladin sacred oath called the oath of liberation and hmm. in the oath of liberation that paladin is probably going to be a chaotic alignment especially if the law of the land that that paladin lives in tends towards oppression so they're using their chaos boundary pushing to institute some social good that's the, that's the, the idea, because the tenets of liberation for this paladin lead the paladin to stand in solidarity with the oppressed and against tyrannical power and societal injustices at all costs. So that's why they can have that chaotic bend, because the order is not good in that particular society. And I think a lot of tricksters live in that space of needing to incite chaos in order for a society to change for the better. 
I was so curious at the, especially in thinking about the mentors from last episode, how one of our points was that they are kind of quirky and outside the normal way of thinking. They can, the mentors can see beyond the immediate and see a little bit further around the corner as it were. And I feel like tricksters also fall into that domain because they're not afraid to push the boundaries, to change the order of things, to poke fun and to kind of wheedle their way into power in order to institute change. And those those tricksters, though, they do, again, tend to be along that good alignment axis, right? Because if they are not good, then they're not really living in that trickster mold. They're just bad. They're just, they're just bad characters. Bad. They're just chaotically bad characters. Uh, and again, in Dungeons & Dragons, chaotic evil is the worst of the alignments to possibly be. But the tricksters, again, they tend to be good characters. And maybe we can move now a little bit more into the the ones from nerd canon and starting with Loki and the MCU uh, because he's a really good test case for when is a character a trickster and when are they just a bad guy? Right. So he starts out more in that just bad guy antagonist camp where he's, he's tricky. He's in it for himself, but he makes a change throughout the course of the movies. In that first Thor movie, Loki is very slippery. We don't really know what his end game is. Pardon the pun. And then in the first Avengers movie, he's actually the bad guy. He is not a trickster in the, in the first Avengers movie. I mean, he's there. He's got this thing that pulls a guy's eyeball out in order Ew, for him to, that. you know, open a thing. And then he, uh, once he's on the aircraft carrier that's in the sky, whatever they, those are called, uh, he he tries to get into Black Widow's head and he calls her a word that is really bad. But it's only bad if you know Shakespeare. That's how they got away with it in a PG-13 movie. No, I would, now I really want to know. Well, I don't want to say it out loud. <laughs> We're not going to say it on air. <laughs> yeah. So he's just um, full on bad guy in that case. He's just a bad guy in that particular movie. Now he's got some funny qualities to him, but it, it's not until later on in the other Thor movies, especially Thor Ragnarok, where he and Thor, it's almost like buddy-buddy in a way, where they're obviously yeah. siblings and they're doing that sibling rivalry thing. But he doesn't feel bad. During that shift. And then, yeah, as, as he's shifting. And then in Infinity War, we actually see him make a sacrifice where he is using his tricksterness to try to kill Thanos right, right at the beginning of the movie. He makes a, a knife appear in his hand and he's about to stab Thanos with it and Thanos uses the, the power stone to stop that from happening and then he kills Loki. You can see the full shift that he makes throughout the course of the movies and you do appreciate that sacrifice a lot more. Instead of it just from him being a kind of morally ambiguous figure, you get the full scope. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting because in Endgame, the Loki who has just been captured after the Battle of New York gets the Tesseract and you know, vanishes. Bring him back. They're making a Disney Plus series, which I don't know if it's going to be about that Loki. I assume so, because the other one seems to be dead, maybe. He yeah. seems to be dead a couple of times, which, again, goes to that trickster nature. That trickster thing, yeah. Yeah, because at the beginning of Thor Ragnarok, he's posing as Odin, watching a play about Thor and Loki. Yes. And I think he's being played by Matt Damon in that uh, little play within the movie. Layers upon layers. Yeah, exactly. But yeah, again, he starts in, the, in that kind of real bad guy camp and then moves some where, where we can really call him a trickster. Let's see, who, who else do we want to talk about here? So I haven't seen Solo, I'll admit, but we do see a little bit of this arc from the morally ambiguous trickster to the 
the trickster using his intelligence and cunning for the greater good in the character of Han Solo. In the movie Solo, we really see more of the trickster coming out. Uh, you haven't seen it at all? I have not seen it at all. And oh, I'm kind no, of you... holding off on seeing it. I'm not sure if I want to. Okay. Well, actually, it's very good. Uh, I, yeah. I quite like it. You should maybe earmuff while I talk about it, though, because I'm going to spoil it. I'll take, sorry, I'm going to take my headphone out. Go all for right. it. Carrie's Tell taking the her headphones out. So, <laughs> yeah. So, in, in, Han, in Solo, uh, Han, at the end of the movie, gives the coaxium to Enfys Nest so she can help the proto rebellion instead of enriching himself and getting out from under the thumb of Crimson Dawn, where earlier in the movie, he was very much just trying to uh, save his own skin and using any means necessary he possibly could. By the end of the movie, we're still not really sure if we trust him to do the right thing. And then he actually does the right thing. And he uses his trickery to help that proto-rebellion instead of just saving his own hide. I just gave Carrie the thumbs up. She's coming back. I'm allowed back now. Okay. It's interesting how these, a lot of these tricksters start in that place of in it for themselves and then move over the course of their narrative uh, to being in it for some sort of social change. You want to talk about Zootopia? Should we talk about Zootopia now? Yes, Nick I, the Fox. All right. All right. So it, they, they live in this kind of semi-utopian city where predators and prey all are get, supposed to be getting along, but there's still a lot of prejudice. They're mm-hmm. all animals, by the way. It's called Zootopia. And so you have this fox, who are traditionally the predators, teaming up with this bunny, who's uh, Judy, who is a police officer, trying to solve crime. And the way that they play with the kind of predator-prey archetypes is really interesting because you, you end up seeing, at first, what seems like your typical scoundrel trying to run a job, taking advantage of, literally taking advantage of lemmings and their following each other. Um, that was our opening quote for those who love selling popsicles to lemmings. That's his, <laughs> that's a job that he's trying to run. Um, and you think of him as this pretty simple, straightforward, cunning, sly fox. And throughout the course of the movie, he, he develops a lot more until you see the depth and the characterization of him. Um, and he, he admits that being that fox, being that cunning fox is a defense mechanism to mm-hmm. protect him from mm-hmm. rejection. And ultimately... I don't know, spoiler alert for Zootopia. So he ends up, you know, getting on the police force because of of his hard work in this area. Um, As the first fox as well. As the first fox, right. Yeah, and because he's been playing into the expectations, those prejudices, if everybody thinks that I'm just a shifty fox, I'm just going to be a shifty fox. I'll show them a shifty fox. Yeah, Um, and it's, yeah, it's a really deep movie. (laughs) It's such a good movie. I mean, there's uh, there's a lot you can say in there about like um, impl- kind of like implicit bias when when suddenly he's there's a scene where Judy pulls out her anti fox spray because she her little bunny brain gets afraid of that he's going to attack her um, and he it really spot- it plays a lot on the ideas of like prejudice and stereotyping mm-hmm. and and then in the story he uses his trickster nature that he's like a grifter kind of the street grifter and he uses all of his street smarts in order to help judy solve the underlying mystery yeah and i wonder if there's something about the trickster feeling rejected and sort of putting on their trickiness their cunning as an armor as a Mm. wall between themselves and others and because I wonder how much of them start have an origin story in rejection. Second sons, the younger, the underdog, 
mm-hmm. having to develop a different way of being because the way that everyone else is called to be in the world doesn't work for them. Yeah, I think that Tyrion Lannister in Game of Thrones is the perfect archetype Absolutely. to fill what you just said because he even I mean he talks about that all the time the cripples bastards and broken things yeah and he's called the imp he is he's the child that his father never wanted the child that that quote unquote killed his own mother plus being a dwarf in a world that a lot of people would would kill their children that were born that way outright mm-hmm. he has he's a, you know has this physical abnormality along with the the shame of shame quote unquote of having killed his mother that means he has to develop a bunch of different ways of being in the world he's not going to be strong and tall like his brother jamie so he uses his mind he tells john in the first book that you know his mind is his weapon and books are his whetstones Mm, yeah yeah that's a great quote and we see with Tyrion a similar progression that we're seeing with several of these trickster type characters where they begin again in that almost hedonistic very much in it for themselves uh, place like loki or or even like nick the fox mm-hmm. uh, and then over the course of the story they use their cunning and their trickery to hopefully change things for the better and Tyrion does start to do that when he's in king's landing as uh, first, the the master is he master of coin, right? Yeah. Uh, and then he ends up as the hand. He's really trying to do good for the people of King's Landing. And he almost surprises himself that he cares so much about what he's doing. Well, because he's being accepted to an extent for the first time in his life. And I think you see that with, with Nick the Fox as well. He's Their, their outsider status is being questioned. So their t- school, tools and skills that they've developed can suddenly be used for a different good. Tyrion uses his trickery to save King's Landing with the, what is it, the, the green fire? What's it called? The Battle of the Blackwater. We'll the call Battle it. of the Blackwater is what I'm talking yeah. about, yes. And then uh, his own reputation for trickery gets the better of him when Joffrey is killed. Because everybody just assumes it was Tyrion. Yeah. And then what does Tyrion do? But what we just talked about with Nick the Fox, he says, this is who you think I am? Well, I might Fine. as well be that person. And he goes and kills his dad. And alienates his brother, his only ally in this whole, in that whole world. Um, and then he goes off and he meets up with Daenerys and his story gets dumb. Oh, but, I think they just kind of <laughs> lost energy around there. <laughs> uh, around all of season, season seven and eight. Ooh, let's not talk about those. Moving on. You've got two characters from Doctor Who on here. Oh, that I'm yeah. I forgot about them. But we're talking about here about River Song from the... Uh, modern Doctor Who, played by the wonderful Alex Kingston. Uh, She is an incredible trickster character. I'm trying to remember her arc. The problem is it happens all out of order. Yeah, it happens kind of backwards. Her very nature is tricky because she's meeting the Doctor in reverse order. I think part of what initially turns her on as being a turns the viewer on to her being a trickster is that she knows more. Mm -hmm. When they first meet up in the library and she's meeting... David Tennant at that point. Yeah, it's David Tennant. Not even yeah. the Matt Smith doctor. It's before then. She's full of this kind of smirky knowledge um, that she uses to intrigue him. As we get her story in reverse order, we see more and more of how she's willing to cross boundaries to do the impossible. Her very life is almost impossible. As I'm thinking about River Song within this idea of being in it for yourself versus kind of being in it for social change because we see her story in reverse 
we actually get her at the end of that journey mm-hmm. because in that first episode she appears, she dies. Well, right. she, gets she, sacri- saved. She, she gets saved by the library, but she sacrifices herself in order to, uh, it's been a while since I saw that episode. It's a great episode of Doctor Who, but she does that sacrificial play. Uh, and then over the course of the next several times we see her, she almost goes backwards into that more in it for herself character. There's that great moment where she's trying to get the doctor's attention and she graffitis like the oldest mountainside in history of the history of the universe. What is it that she says? I was, hello, sweetie. Her, that's her catchphrase. Yes, her catchphrase, hello, yeah. sweetie. The Matt Smith doctor is a bit of a trickster as well. Each doctor has their own way of being and both David Tennant and uh, Matt Smith lived a little bit more in that trickster nature, especially Matt Smith. Mm-hmm. He always seemed to be, you know, one step ahead, but always doing things in, in a strange way, a very unexpected way. And for the purpose of furthering his kind of nonviolent agenda, actually, and you see that early, very early on with Christopher Eccleston's doctor, when he, he replaces someone's gun with a banana and it's just like, you know, basically don't use guns, use bananas. Bananas are good. The best thing about Doctor Who is the nonviolence of it. The fact that he uses a screwdriver as opposed to a weapon. Right. You know, right there, there's a trickiness to the screwdriver that has all of these settings uh, and then can be defeated by wood. Right? <laughs> oh, that's made of wood. I can't do anything with it. It just constantly puts your expectations on end, which is what I love about that show. Yeah, I love that moment where Matt Smith is using like a jammy dodger cookie as a as like a doomsday button with the <laughs> yeah. Daleks. Mm-hmm. It's just completely ludicrous, you know, or or in the moment with the Pandorica where he's wearing the fez and he's going back and forth in time. It's just absolutely brilliant. Uh and that character couldn't exist without that trickster archetype. Because what is he doing uh but trying to make sure everybody lives, right? That's Christopher Eccleston's mm-hmm. big thing. Everybody, everybody lives, lives right? for once. I have not yet seen the Jodie Whittaker mm-hmm. episodes. Have you? We saw about half of them. And then I think our Nick and I got involved in something else. So we stopped watching them. But we'd, I'd love to pick back up on them. She, has, she brings an interesting energy as well. Always, I, always, I always love the new doctors. I want you to talk about Fred and George Weasley. So I think, again, they, we, keep, we keep going back to this, this sort of arc that we like, we want these tricksters to have moving from the self-centered to the more using their, the tools that they've developed as outsiders into using these tools to dismantle oppression and problematic authority structures. I don't know if Fred and George are ever outsiders, but they mm-hmm. definitely, as the twins who are born on April Fool's Day, they are natural jokesters. And you see they don't have a lot of direction for that energy in the earlier books. They're just kind of causing chaos. They're going to blow up a toilet. They're going to sing the school song really slow and make everyone look at them. They kind of are in it for the attention. <laughs> yeah, and Dumbledore knows them really well. Yes, they, they have the eyes yeah. of the authority on them. <laughs> yeah, means they know they've gotten in trouble. Yeah, Hagrid knows them, Filch knows them, everyone knows them, but in just this sort of class clown way. But where they really gain energy and focus is when Umbridge comes in in book five, and suddenly their willingness to break the rules, to play outside of the box a little bit, becomes a way of taking her down. Mm-hmm. And I love, I love that they find that. And then in book six, 
when they've graduated, when they're out in the world, sorry, they didn't graduate. They dropped out right. and formed their own they, business. They didn't drop out. They flew out. They flew out. Yeah. They went out into the sunset on their stolen brooms, but they are, they end up using their joke shop, which is ostensibly just kind of a, a frivolous business in two different ways. One, they're using all of the things they've learned to help equip the, the goods, the side of good to fight the evil side by making those, those uh, dark detectors, the, those shield charm hats. But then also I think just their use of laughter in a very oppressive environment is a protest in and of itself. Once they have that focal character of Umbridge, who is, again, this goes back to that alignment system thing. Umbridge is lawful evil. Absolutely. Uh, She is law. She is order, but she's not good order. (laughs) And they get to use their chaotic good natures to take her down. And it's fabulous. And the way that they're able to bring people together and bring this joy. I love that the way the other professors follow in their footsteps while still obeying the letter of the law, they kind of follow the student rebellion against her, but by doing their jobs exactly as they're asked. Mm-hmm. Exactly, they, they protest in a very subtle way, in a very lawful way, whereas the Weasley twins are the chaotic way. So let's end our discussion here talking about the character that we had the nerd canon quote about, Ella Herrera, from Watership Down. This is the rabbit kind of god figure in a way. He's like uh, in, yeah, the Prince of Rabbits. Yeah, the Prince of Rabbits within the Watership Down uh, mythos. And several stories get told about El Herrera throughout the book Watership Down. Uh, the storyteller rabbit over the course of the book shares several stories of El Herrera. And I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right, but we're going to go with that. And it's it's fascinating because the stories of El Herrera are all, are all about rabbits outsmarting more powerful creatures. And in this way, rabbits can hold on to their essential dignity when the rest of the animal world respects only power. So we already we see that same structure of Elohara is challenging the kind of that power structure of the day, which as a rabbit could seem very oppressive. Sure. I mean, they're not going to win over anything with their strength or any other characteristics. They're the small, the fast ones, the outsmarting ones. We see Elohara's influence uh, on our main character rabbits, you know, uh, Fiverr and Hazel and the others, Bigwig, uh, most clearly in their conflict with General Woundwort. Because mm-hmm. General Woundwort obviously is another rabbit, but this rabbit has taken on the power identity of the wider world. Woundwort would never countenance hearing a story of Alejandra because he wants complete control within Ephrafa. Woundwort has this authoritarian control, this authoritarian government thing going on. Uh, He oppresses the rabbits under his control so that he can mask his vulnerability towards larger predators. Mm -hmm. And rather than relying on cleverness, he rules by fear and violence. And so we have, again, this chaos versus order thing happening where the other rabbits who are coming in to... Uh, bring the female rabbits back to their warren, they're having to use complete trickery. And and it all comes down to they get a boat, right? They make a boat. They make it, yeah. Who, who's ever seen a boat before? The other warren that they come across earlier in the book also has forgotten El Herrera, right? Well, they've, and, and they've kind of essentially given up their ultimate rabbity nature. They've given up what it means to be a rabbit to to exist in this 
more underdog state because of that that fear. Yeah, and they basically they know that they're being sacri- they're sacrificing members of their war in in order for their own comfort, and yet nobody will talk about it. Yep. It just is happening on the outskirts of the society, and it's just something that we have to live with, but we're never going to mention. And our main character rabbits are completely horrified by this. And again, they they escape using some cleverness. Uh, the stories, the stories of the rabbits' trickster god Ella Herrera, allows them allow them not to internalize the oppression they might otherwise feel. Mm. The stories promote the qualities of cunning, cleverness, intelligence, and in a way, generosity, because El O'Hara in his stories then is able to distribute kind of the wealth that he creates. And so they are able to say, no, this is what makes rabbits special. And it might not be the thing that every other creature thinks makes a creature special, but this is our thing and we are proud of it. And like like a lot of the underdogs we see um, that do break rules, that do accomplish their means through trickery. The authority figure kind of smiles upon that. You see the Lord Frith, the Lord of mm, the Sun mm-hmm. in this, in Watership Down. You get the sense that he does, he, li- he likes the rabbits. He ends up gifting El Herrera with his, with his ears um, mm-hmm. and kind of helping him mirror back who he is. So you get the sense that he's on, he's ultimately on their side in a way. Yeah. Even right. if, even if he's, they get frustrated. That kind of brings us all the way full circle back to Jacob. Absolutely. Uh, And that, again, that underdog status that the trickster kind of lives in. You can't help but like them unless they're being self-serving, in which case then they're annoying and they should go away. And hopefully over the course of their narrative, they move away from that into uh, that social change character, Mm -hmm. uh, which is where we should all be living uh, if we're living in, uh, in a society that does have unjust power structures like ours does. Right. And using every tool at our disposal, even the tools of the system that we've been born into and given to help dismantle it. We're back with our ongoing book group about Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone. Here's a recap of chapters 11 through 15. Chapter 11, Quidditch. What can we say about chapter 11, Quidditch, except that J.K. Rowling disliked writing Quidditch, and readers like me generally don't like reading it. Anyway, Harry has his first ever Quidditch match and tensions are high. During the game, Harry's broom starts misbehaving, jerking around and almost bucking Harry off. Hermione's convinced it is Snape's fault, and on her way to light him on fire, she knocks into poor Quirrell. No longer hindered by his broomstick, Harry captures the snitch in the most bizarre but still legal way possible, by nearly swallowing it. This spectacular capture will be important eventually, but for now let's just enjoy the Gryffindor victory. While Harry's mouth may have been his friend today, Hagrid's is not. He accidentally lets slip to the trio that the item the three-headed dog is guarding has something to do with Dumbledore and a man called Nicholas Flamel. Chapter 12, The Mirror of Erised. The Christmas holidays arrive and the castle empties of all but a few students. Hermione leaves to go skiing with her parents while Malfoy goes back to his loving, supporting, caring family leaving Harry and Ron with fewer distractions so they can focus on their trips to the library. Yes, that's right. These two jokers are going to the library to search for Nicholas Flamel, of course. 
Christmas at Hogwarts is as bizarre and delightful as the school itself, but the best present Harry could receive comes in the form of a mysterious silvery invisibility cloak once belonging to his father. That night, Harry takes it out for a spin. Wandering through the dark hallways of Hogwarts, he stumbles across the bizarre Mirror of Erised, which shows him a heartbreaking image, Harry standing surrounded by his parents and extended family. He has never seen them before and lingers, soaking up the joy of being surrounded for the first time ever by people who love him. The next night, he invites Ron back with him, but instead of seeing Ron's family, Ron sees himself as head boy and Quidditch captain. Harry's third pilgrimage to the mirror is interrupted by Dumbledore himself, who explains that the mirror shows you the deepest, most desperate desires of our hearts. Ron, overshadowed by talented brothers, sees himself standing alone, the best of them all. Harry, growing up neglected and alone, sees himself surrounded by his family. What does Dumbledore see in the mirror? Why, himself, holding a pair of thick woolen socks. Or so he says. Chapter 13, Nicholas Flamel. Harry can't help but linger on the images he saw in the mirror and begins having nightmares, a flash of green light and a horrible cackling laughter. But distraction arrives in the form of discovery. At long last, Harry's candy addiction pays off. On the back of a chocolate frog card, Harry stumbles across the name Nicholas Flamel. It all clicks. Flamel is a famed alchemist and creator of the Philosopher's Stone, that's Sorcerer's Stone to us Americans, an object that can turn any substance into gold and create the elixir of life, which makes the drinker immortal. Who wouldn't want that? After a blessedly short yet eventful game of Quidditch, Harry follows Snape into the forest and overhears an angry conversation between himself and Quirrell. Harry, Ron, and Hermione realize that the only thing in the way between Snape and the stone is poor, stuttering, cowardly Professor Quirrell. This can't be good. Chapter 14, Norbert the Norwegian Ridgeback. Nothing of consequence happens at all in this chapter. There's a baby dragon whose name should be MacGuffin, not Norbert. Basically, the author needs an excuse to get Harry into the Forbidden Forest, and detention is the ticket. Chapter 15, The Forbidden Forest. The punishment for being out of bed after hours is severe. 150 points from Gryffindor and 50 from Slytherin, plus detention. Harry, Hermione, and Neville are shunned by their housemates because they all actually care about house points, even though it's a complete sham of a system. Anyway, detention looks like it might not be that bad. Hagrid is leading them into the Forbidden Forest to track down some injured unicorns, and Malfoy is scared silly. But it's not all laughs. The centers they meet are tense, warning of danger in the skies. I hear Mars is bright tonight. Harry and Malfoy find the dead unicorn and the creature who killed it, a hooded figure drinking its blood, causing Harry's scar to explode in pain for the first time. He is rescued by Ferenz, a friendly centaur. Unicorn blood, it seems, can extend life, but at a terrible cost. And who would pay such a price? Someone who is already inches from death. Someone with nothing to lose. Someone like Voldemort. I don't have much to say about these chapters except to talk about the Mirror of Erised and maybe a little bit about the centaur's fortune-telling ability. It's, it's a lot of like furthering the plot chapters again. I feel like we're getting in the, the last sort of leap before the end. Mm-hmm. That middle section of a book is hard to write. Uh, in all of my novel writing career, I can write the first 20,000 words of a novel and the last 20,000 words of a novel like so easily and the middle 40,000 words are just a pain. Sounds like uh, it, Wise Men's Fear by Pat Rothfuss. He just oh goes my, off oh the, no. middle, the middle of that book is so rough. Oh, we could have talked about uh, Quoth for tricksters. He's a trickster. Oh, man, he Oh, is. man, we missed Quoth. Oh, I'm sorry. We'll, oh, talk, well. we'll have a whole episode on him. All right. So well. what, I think for me also, 
the mirror of Erised. I think that was the one thing I said last time I was looking forward to talking mm-hmm, about, mm-hmm. about these chapters because it's such a heartbreaking chapter. Before we get there, let's just a couple of quick observations. One, mm. in the Quidditch chapter, Hermione had become a bit more relaxed about breaking rules. I love that, yeah. Uh, <laughs> we talked a lot about that last episode. I also love that in the Quidditch scene, Harry feels braver when he sees his friend's support. I love that J.K. Rowling used the word brave there. Mm. Yeah, that he feels brave about ta- playing the Quidditch game. You know, not that he feels good or that he feels better, but that he that he feels brave. And br- bravery is is um, doing the thing that you're afraid to do. Still doing it anyway, even when you're afraid. Like what Ned Stark said, a, m- a man can only be brave when he is also afraid. There you go. Yeah, right. Um, I love Wizard's Chess. The way they do it in the book is so much better than in the movies because the the chess pieces actually have personalities. I love that it looks a lot like the game they play in Star Wars. Oh, Dejeric, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, Where they're where, like we, fighting each other and wrestling. They're fighting each other, but and, and but the pieces won't, won't obey the player if they're yeah, making they're, bad moves. They're yelling at him, and you have to break in. I love that they said like Harry breaks in his spe- set spectacularly by losing to Ron. You right. think of like they're literally breaking. Right, right. Harry. Um, Harry has uh, is surprised by having presents on Christmas. Which is a really sad thing to think. Uh, it's a little bit of a moment of grace, though, when you see the beginning of his adoption by the Weasley family. And I think it's it's interesting to also see the difference in their upbringing when Ron's like, what did you expect? Turnips? You know, he's kind of surprised. Like, why wouldn't you expect presents? Because Ron has never known anything but mm-hmm. a loving, warm, albeit possibly overlooking him type of family. I laugh. At, I laughed out loud when Fred and George come in in their sweaters. We know we're Gred and Forge. We know we're Gred and Forge. It's just so good. And I, lo- I love their interaction with Percy too. They're like frog marching him out. Like Christmas is a time for family. Yep. <laughs> and then of course, Christmas is a time for family. So Harry yeah. discovers the mirror and he sees his family. Now in the movie, does he see more than his parents? No, he just sees yeah, his that's parents. Right. I was, cause I was surprised when I read the book and I thought, oh wow, there's more generations there. Cause I guess I had the scene in the, from the mm-hmm. movie in my head. He sees, he sees more than just his parents. It connects him to this whole world and he sees literally parts of him in mm. this family. He sees the green eyes and the novelty knees. Um, it's connecting him to this wider heritage that, you know, both, all of his grandparents have died. All his, I don't think he's got, co- you know, cousins beyond Dudley. And then of course the idea of Harry's lineage becomes a, an important plot point in the last book. And we've just received the invisibility cloak. We don't know now that that invisibility cloak, like the mirror, is connecting him to uh, a much uh, a much earlier heritage. Mm. Well, because all we see in this in this book is the sheer desire for human connection, for kin, for mm-hmm. some people who understand him and love him. This is his first glimpse of people that are blood relatives who who actually might relate to him. I think you see a lot in Harry Potter about. This this idea that we see in queer culture of chosen family, if you're rejected mm. by your blood mm-hmm. family, you get to choose a family. It's an important survival technique and, and really important. And that mm. I think the rest of the world is learning from that community. And I think Harry is also, as a rejected person, someone who's been let down by his blood family, choosing a family in the Weasleys and Hermione in eventually mm-hmm. the Order. Mm-hmm. And here we see the fact that maybe his, his physical rel- his relatives by blood if they had been still alive, would have connected to him. Mm -hmm. The mirror, the words scrolled along the mirror say, I show not your face, but your heart's desire. 
mm-hmm. uh, you know, obviously in that kind of weird backwards language. Uh, and I wonder what you would see if you looked in the mirror. I would see myself holding a pair of socks, of course. Of course you would, yeah. You're going to dodge the question. <laughs> well, I don't know if I have actually thought about it before. I thought a lot about the characters and what they see, um, mm-hmm. what it means to them, but I don't know if I would... If I would what a cool tool to actually be able to have that reflected back at you. Cause I imagine it might yeah. change over time. Oh, I, I, it's got to, of course it's got, yeah. yeah, it must, it must. Cause yeah, before I had children, I wouldn't, you know, wish for a, I wouldn't see myself sleeping all night in a bed. <laughs> Is that what you'd see yeah. in the mirror? I, <laughs> you I think Leah so. Just collapse I, I, eight no, hours. I would see, yeah, I would see me sleeping for a whole night. It shows us nothing more or less than the deepest, most desperate desire of our hearts. That is eight hours eight uninterrupted hours sleep. sleep. And honestly, it's not my kids. They sleep great. It's me. Uh, I, I throw them <laughs> under the bus. But um, not but the thing, the thing about the mirror that bothers me is how self-centered it is and how selfish it is. Dumbledore says the happiest man on earth would be able to use the mirror of Erised like a normal mirror. That is, he would look into it and see himself exactly as he is. Himself exactly as he is. Himself Maybe not exactly. the world. Exactly. And that's what himself. That to me is what is what Ooh. is troubling about the mirror. Again, because it's about desire. Mm-hmm. Right? It's about so is there a way to have a desire in yourself that is not self-centered? And would the mirror show a desire for you know, justice for the oppressed? Would it show a desire for, to do what we were talking about with the tricksters, to you know, change, mm-hmm. uh, change unjust systems? Because you know, that would be a deep desire of my heart, but would the mirror show that? You know, if I'm just the happiest man in the world, then I'm ignoring most of the world. Or would it show your role in that, I guess, but that's still very focused on individual action and on, on your individual happiness. What would it show in the mirror if, if it were showing my role in that, uh, in, in say, in say like, say anti-racism, what would mm-hmm. it show if that was a deep desire in my heart to, to live into an anti-racist personality or persona or whatever? I, I wonder, I know some of part, part of the hard part of being the people that we are called to be is learning how to get there. I see this happen mm. in my church a lot. I know we're called to be different than how we are, a more beloved community. And all we see people seem to imagine when we imagine a different future is how we were 30 years ago. Mm-hmm. It's like that you can't imagine anything different than what we've experienced. So the mirror, if it could show something beyond just the one individual level, could be a hugely helpful tool in imagining a different world. Mm-hmm. It shows you. It's kind of like when we see, when we read about like utopias in fiction, we see a different world that is more beautiful. When we watch Star Trek and we see like this type of world could exist, mm-hmm. we just have to get there. It spurs us on to greater creativity and hopefulness. Hmm. But what do we make about it does not do to dwell on dreams and forget to live? Dumbledore's ultimate advice is to not pay attention to the mirror. I'm wondering if because it's it's ultimately focused on something that's maybe not possible in Harry's case Mm -hmm. uh, or not particularly useful in the case of Ron's. And Dumbledore has experience in that the mirror has driven people crazy. Yeah. You know, it said, he says the mirror will give us neither knowledge or truth. Men have wasted away before it entranced by what they have seen or been driven mad, not knowing if what it shows is real or even possible. I mean, it's a really scary magical artifact in that sense. 
Because how intoxicating would it be to see exactly your, your heart's truest desire out, out there thinking it's possible, but maybe it's not. And later in the book, obviously, we, we, we're not spoiling anything here because we assume that people who are listening to this know the story of Harry Potter. Uh, I sure hope. Um, but Harry's desire changes in the moment, the next moment that he sees the mirror, he's not seeing his parents. Right. In sees- that moment, he's got a very different heart's desire. Uh, the, the idea of the not dwelling on dreams and forgetting to live, I think the dwell is the important thing here. Hmm. It's like, don't sink into your dreams. You can wade into your dreams, have those dreams, and then have them become your drive, your fuel, Mm -hmm. your aspiration in your actual life. Which is a good reminder for those of us who have to live. We have a dream for something beyond what we have, but we have to also live in the here and now. Mm -hmm. You can't, you have to get there by baby steps. If it's even, if that dream is possible. And as Christians, we believe our dreams are possible that the, mm-hmm. the communities we imagine, the the sort of union with God and the ultimate you know, plan of resurrection is possible. Mm-hmm. Um, but if we get stuck there, we don't live in the here and now. And and talking about baby steps, you know, one of Jesus's most famous sayings is, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And those that, that order is important. The way is the road that you're actually following, you know, which is a road of truth that mm. leads to a full life. It's not the other way around. It's way, truth, life, not life, truth, way. Um, so it does have that walking quality, that journeying quality. Anything else about the mirror? Just very sad. Makes me yeah. very sad. Yeah. I love that in chapter 14, the only note I see in your document is just ditany. It's the word ditany. Yeah, because that comes back in uh, in book uh, seven. It's the thing that Hermione uses to repair... Ron's splinched arm. Um, I love that uh, Harry wonders if Snape can read minds. Yeah, because he wonders that a lot. Because <laughs> he can. Yeah, he right? does. Oh, no, he can't. <laughs> the mind is not something like a book to be okay, open. Okay, well, he can Thoughts do. Thoughts are leg- not etched on the inside of your skull. He can. He extract. can do legitimate. He could do legitimacy. Is that right? Yeah, I think so. Wait, which one? Legitimacy is shielding, and legitimacy is grabbing the thoughts. Yes, right, he's okay. a skilled legitimans. Legitimans. Excellent. So let's t- let's talk about centaurs, though, because they this yeah. is their first appearance, and they they do show up later. We meet friends. Um, isn't Ferenz the Italian word for Florence? Yes, the city and of Florence. And there was oh yeah. my gosh, there were fan theories about that oh, back no. in the day because <laughs> there's a character called Florence in a memory. And everyone's uh, like, what's the yeah. connection? And the answer was nothing. There was there no wasn't connection. <laughs> people were convinced. Anyway. Well, people thought that Snoke was going to be a big deal in the sequel trilogy of Star Wars, and then he gets <gasps> cut in half. So <laughs> Misguided. It's okay. So the thing that gets me about the, about the centaurs and their idea of the reading of the planets uh, is, is the concept of prophecy or fortune telling being mm-hmm. immutable. Where the idea, so the thing about Old Testament prophecy is that the prophets are telling truth to power in order that the, again, those structures of society might change. What they're saying is that if you don't change, yeah, then things this are going to go bad, which is the whole the thing of the, in the book of Jonah. Jonah gets mad because the city of Nineveh isn't destroyed. It's not destroyed. He's a, he thinks he's a bad prophet. He's actually a very successful he's prophet. A, he's an incredibly successful <laughs> prophet, right. And yet here they say, uh, Ferenc says, the planets have been read wrongly before now, even by centaurs. I hope this is one of those times. Right, like it's written up there, and the only way it can't change, I guess, by that idea. Right. 
but maybe we can read it wrong. It's really kind of weird. Um, but I think it's a more popular understanding of prophecy than what biblical prophecy actually is, which is, and Hermione calls it fortune telling. Right. It sounds like fortune telling to me. And Professor McGonagall says that's a very imprecise branch of magic, which is a great little nugget because foreshadowing. Hide that away until book yeah, three. Exactly. Hermione ditches class. That's the best. Um, but it's it's fascinating though, because they are not reading the signs wrong. They just, they don't realize that it's going to take six more years for what is being prophesied to happen. You know, because because Ferenc saves Harry from Voldemort here and then... Uh, is it Bane? Bane is like, Bane. no, why did you do that? We we have read the signs, i.e. this kid needs to die by right. the hands leaves, of that it creature. Leaves, it leaves Bane being very fatalistic. Like it's already all written in the stars. Mm-hmm. I don't. We don't need to do anything. Right. And in the end, what is we assume written in the stars does happen, which is Harry dies by Voldemort's hand in the Forbidden Forest. And that the innocents are the first victims, Cedric Diggory. Oh God, yeah the uh, the first the first victims are always the innocent. That is quite a lie. Well, I mean, yeah. So you get the unicorns. You have a, mm-hmm. a, a baby that kickstarts this whole second wave of of it. Um, a muggle dies. Mm-hmm. All these first deaths are the innocents. So it, it's like they're very wise, but then they also can become divorced from reality. And maybe that's where mm-hmm. it's. Was it Hagrid says like you know ruddy stargazers are not interested in anything like closer than the moon. Yeah. But there's we see division among the community, and mm-hmm. so much so that Ferenz gets kicked out eventually. By yeah, they're not a monoculture. Ferenz, yeah. Ferenz ends up working in Hogwarts, so yeah. Right. Hagrid typical kind of painting everyone with the same brush and taking on those attitudes of the magical community mm-hmm. and those mm-hmm. prejudices. So next time, Carrie, we're finishing. Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone, right? Chapter 16, Through the Trap Door, and Chapter 17, The Man with Two Faces. Thank you for listening to this episode of the podcast for Nerdy Christians. You can find us at nerdychristians.com or on social media, facebook.com slash nerdychristians, and on Twitter. Twitter. And on Twitter at Nerdy Christians. You can find me on Twitter at Rev Adam Thomas or on my website, wherethewind.com. I've got a few fantasy novels out, the middles of which were challenging to write. There's The Storm Curtain and The Halfling Contagion on my website or Amazon.com. My new novel, The Islands of Shattered Glass, comes out before Christmas, which is right around the corner as far as when we are releasing this podcast. Uh, So look for that soon. You can always find both Carrie and me right here on the next episode of the podcast for Nerdy Christians. If you possess an abundance of brains and an unconventional mind and a creative spirit, I pray that God will bless you with wisdom to use these tools to overcome obstacles, dismantle oppression, and bring delight, laughter, and joy into the world. And the blessing of God Almighty be among you and remain with you always. Amen.